We are back with season three of Arizona Opera Behind the Scenes, a podcast. In this series, host Cassie Hollerbach, the director of education, and Kathleen Trott, the shop manager for the Marlou Allen and Scott Stallard Costume Artisan Workshop, will introduce you to all of the departments and people at Arizona Opera that are necessary to produce the operas you enjoy. In this episode, we will talk with Clayton Rodney, Arizona Opera's new director of production. So welcome, everyone. We're excited to have Clayton Rodney, our new director of production, join Cassie and I today. Thanks for agreeing to chat with us. You're welcome. I didn't know I had a choice. <laughs> you didn't. That's fine. We basically just said, hey, Clayton, you're our new director of production. We're recording our podcast, and everyone wants to meet you. So here you are. <laughs> it's like when a parent asks a kid to do something. Mm-hmm. It wasn't really a choice, but... Yeah. 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 We worked into the job description. It's fine. <laughs> it comes with free lunch, though, right? Sure. Sure, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> yep, free lunch, yeah. Well, let me call right now. Yeah. <laughs> um, so let's just start out by what a director of production does. I think last season we touched a little bit about this with um, Greg Hirsch, who was our past director of production. But we would like to have some information from you about what you envision a director of production doing and helping facilitate at the opera company. Sure. Well, kind of the way I I think of this, because I get asked this question a lot, you know, what do you do? Um, The sum of it kind of is the director of production is responsible to lead the team that gets everything onto the stage. So the only thing... Thing that I, I think production is not responsible for is the physical singer, the person who's actually making the sound. Um, but we're responsible for everything that singer is wearing, touching, walking on, lit by, um, breathing if it's you know fog, <laughs> the fire, everything. That's that's what the director of production's job is. Um, and fortunately, the rest of the team is sort of all all there. So, what is your Favorite. You just listed a lot of things that production does. What is your favorite? Uh, well, I would say that my favorite thing that production does is uh, to take a production that that doesn't exist, um, other than in the minds of you know the director or the designer, and and they put it on paper, and then it's up to us to actually make it happen. It's up to the production department to realize all those elements getting there to tell the story. So. What I love is when, before before a singer even sings a note, the curtain rises and the audience erupts into applause because of the scenery. I mean, that is really rewarding. And uh, they don't even know that the scenery can do anything other than just sit there yet. So I find that that to be one of the best, most rewarding parts of, of being that. Uh, and, and getting these elements to align uh, you know the costumes the that are made in a different place than the set, uh, the painting, the special effects, the video, all to align into one vision, and we really only see it a couple times before the audience sees it. So it's it's really rewarding to see all those those pieces come together. So what then is the most challenging part 
of getting all of those pieces to collaborate properly? <laughs> um, money. Uh, <laughs> uh, making it all happen in sort of a fiscally responsible way. Uh, making sure that we get what's needed for the production, but also not straining the resources of the company. Uh, being a responsible fiscal steward is very challenging because we always want to do the most, the more. Oh, wouldn't this be great? But we find ourselves sort of balancing the reality of the budgets. Um, and, and being responsible not only to the production but to the people that work on the production you know these are these are people's livelihoods that they have mortgages car payments kids uh all these commitments financial commitments and and we're responsible for making sure that they're employed and i think that that is is a a challenge it's rewarding but it's a big challenge to make sure that we're balancing fiscal responsibility and doing right by the people that that work at this organization. For the people who are new listening to the podcast, if you've been listening for a while, you may uh, know some of this information, but for anyone that's new, Clayton, can you tell us a little bit about what resources Arizona Opera has? So you're just talking about all the things that go into the production, and I think what a lot of people don't know um, is the resources that this company has to make those happen. So can you tell us a little bit about those? Sure. Uh, I mean, this company is so fortunate that it has an amazing costume shop uh, located here with with a great staff that's really here year-round. We have a scenic shop uh, that's fully equipped and staffed as well. Uh, We have storage and a great inventory of equipment. Uh, The lighting equipment here is incredible. The video equipment here is incredible, and we work in four amazing venues, two different venues in Phoenix and two different venues in Tucson. And those venues are amazing. They're well-equipped, they're beautiful, and uh, they fit the shows and what, what we're trying to do. So I'd say you passed that test very well. Yeah. <laughs> oh, my goodness. <laughs> um, last fun fact question, if you know the answer to this one. Um, how many sets does Arizona Opera store in our scenic studio? <laughs> I don't know the answer to this. So I'm that's a question. That's a that's a good question because we just um, removed some of them from our inventory. I believe there are twelve. That's I. That's a. Gr- I mean, I would totally believe that. I wanted mm-hmm. to ask that just because it puts a little perspective on how big this space is, mm-hmm. and people don't think about the fact that we're also storing these things we're building them and then but yeah if you walked into our scenic studio i think we did a little video montage potentially um in the past but it's just this massive space Mm -hmm. um that yeah that's 12 sets i'd believe it we'll go with it it's twenty-two thousand square feet and it's not nearly big enough to fit everything it has the costume stored in it it has all of our lighting and video equipment stored there Uh, it's offices for the lighting supervisor um, offices for the technical director. I mean, there's a, a lot of space over there, including all of our prop storage. Yeah. I always mm-hmm. forget about prop storage, mm-hmm. but it takes up a considerable amount of space. I mean, if you see a chair on stage, that had to come from somewhere, and it probably came from storage. Well, so. and often that chair that's on stage was not the only choice that mm-hmm. our lovely Elena presented to the director as an option, which mm-hmm. means that she has to have four different options for every single chair mm-hmm on set and you have to store it someplace people ask me that all the time about costumes well what do you do with it afterwards Mm -hmm. well 
we keep it because we've yep. invested so much time and money into it so then we can use it in the future or rent it mm-hmm. out to other people which is also an aspect of clayton's job yeah. that he hasn't mentioned so far but that he has to facilitate all of these rentals of our production <laughs> assets that go out to other companies and that itself is a whole full-time fiasco sometimes too <laughs> <laughs> yeah definitely working with other companies that have a different schedule different loading plan um getting payment for those things mm-hmm. before they ship that's a really important part that i learned in my last job uh <laughs> as you want to make sure you get paid before it goes out the door yeah. um but you know just to to touch on your point about the the chair i mean in opera we have such a large number of people that uh once that chair gets approved we need 14 of them yeah you know right. it's not usually just one of something right. so i mean we're keeping multiples of everything and the same is so true in costumes as you know you know we have a huge chorus so it's a it's a chorus of villagers you know and so you need 20 villagers and then all of a sudden they're you know the rich people in uh, in a ballroom and the director wants them all to have a pouch so they can have money and Mm -hmm. yeah exactly so and all that is there in the fabulous scenic studios Mm -hmm. (laughs) so we have said that you are new to arizona (laughs) opera how long as of right now while we're recording have you been with us I would consider myself brand new. Uh, six and a half weeks I've been here. I feel like I've aged 30 years in that amount of time. <laughs> it's, uh, it's, a huge, uh, it's a huge job and a huge position to learn at this organization. And uh, having come from uh, a little bit smaller company uh, in Edmonton, Alberta, Canada, Edmonton Opera, uh, where I was there for almost 18 years, everything was sort of like a shorthand. And here it's learning all of the new parts and all of the new pieces and remembering everyone's name I mean mm-hmm. and then you meet some people that are wearing a mask and oh, no. some people and then you see them outside and they're not wearing a mask and, and it's like hi nice to meet you and they go I've met you <laughs> multiple times and you go oh my goodness so. extra impressive that he was able to rattle off all of our resources <laughs> yeah you know, I had an ulterior motive there I'm just curious you know <laughs> So you just mentioned that you're from Canada. So how did you end up with Arizona Opera? Well, uh, like many people, and I'm going to try not to say the word pandemic too many times, um, I was sitting at home uh, <laughs> trying to figure out what to do with our lives and our and our company in Edmonton. And uh, I started thinking um, that I uh, need to try something else, you know, and, and I'm not ready to change careers. I mean, I love this career path. I mean, I know I was meant to do this. Um, but I was fortunate enough that the pandemic created some opportunities to sort of take a moment, think about what I wanted in life and what I wanted to get out of my career. And it sort of came to a realization that I've been in the same place for such a long time that it was time to try to explore something new. And I'm so fortunate that um, that there's an opportunity here at Arizona Opera, which is a company that aligns really well with sort of where I see my career being, which is a company that produces new works, a company that has uh, great resources in production, uh, has a commitment 
to spend money to develop new productions, whether they're completely new works or they're new sets and new costumes. And I think that that's a really, um, a really great aspect for me to want to come to. And uh, fortunately, uh, my amazing predecessor here, Greg Hirsch, has retired, and so uh, I'm able to still access him as a resource, which is nice. Um, he's probably tired of hearing from me at this point, um, but uh, luckily I still have his personal email and phone number, so until he changes them, he's going to keep hearing from me. I love it. So have you always been wanting to work in theater? How long have you been in theater? Well, I mean, my whole career <laughs> has been in theater. Um, I went to uh, school in Edmonton, and I was actually doing a prerequisite for something completely different. I took uh, technical theater uh, as my prereq to be in television and broadcasting. Hmm. And I thought, well, I'll do my two years in technical theater, and then I'll go do my two years in um, television broadcasting. Um, I just happened to find theater that I'm good at. And that's the that's the crazy thing. I mean, if you're open to life leading you in a little bit of a different path, you can often find what you were meant to do. And I mean, I was meant to do this. So I was at Edmonton Opera for almost 18 years. I started working at Edmonton Opera as a production assistant almost right out of school. And uh, I don't know somebody there. Uh, his name is Richard Sims. <laughs> he was the former director of production. Uh, for Edmonton Opera, he sort of saw something in me and uh, basically was an amazing mentor and gave me a great career uh, to work on. And, and I still, to this day, you know, take some of his advice. Some of it I don't. <laughs> um, but uh, I was very fortunate to find uh, Edmonton Opera and fortunate to get that opportunity and uh, and fortunate that somebody keeps paying me to do this job. Mm -hmm. So that's the great part. Yeah. So then, since you've spent such a long part of your career at Edmonton Opera, what what is your favorite project that you were involved in there? Um, I would have to say it was the creation of the Opera Center, mm. which was the first time that Edmonton had a building where rehearsal, where we owned our own rehearsal hall, uh, had our own rehearsal hall, our own scenic shop, our costume shop, administration, box office, the entire operations of the company, except for performances, were in one building under one roof. And it changed the company dramatically. It took a company that was sort of um, like every other regional opera company in Canada, sort of spread out, doing things on a dime, not creating new work or new productions but really uh, just sort of moving through the, the scope of renting productions. And as we started looking at what the audience in Edmonton wanted and what our patrons wanted, we developed a bricks and mortar solution and were able to produce a lot of fantastic operas that came from that building. And it really was a hub. And, and I'm very proud of what that was and uh, I'm very fortunate that Arizona Opera has something very similar I mean it's two different roofs because the buildings are both massive yep. um, but uh, really fortunate that that uh, Arizona Opera has the same sort of commitment to to that so I mean 
in terms of in terms of projects uh in terms of shows uh i could easily say that um the mad massive co-production between five canadian opera companies that was built in edmonton uh was a huge success it was la traviata um it's played in four of the five cities it uh, was canceled due to the pandemic oh, there no, i get man. to say pandemic yeah. again yeah um and is going to be produced hopefully uh very soon by uh opera de montreal and uh that co-production was an incredible feat for those five companies to come together to produce a, you know a a production that easily cost a million dollars that no single company could have could have have put on stage um and it was incredible incredible to see it in all those cities uh great to go to those cities to set it up uh great to not go to those cities and set it up and just see the pictures (laughs) i mean it was a big show so yeah Yeah, that's a big show all by itself but then to facilitate four other companies also coming to agreement on aspects is a on, big deal on everything and it's the show that took the most amount of planning and yet in the end was still so rushed i mean it was two years of planning to to do this co-production and we're lucky that the the general directors and the ceos of those five opera companies um sort of stuck it out especially uh with so many changes happening in opera over the over the two years and then the the four years that followed that uh, sort of got that show to the stage and uh, yeah so I'm very proud of that visually I would have to say the the most awe-striking production I've ever worked on at Edmonton Opera was uh, Don Giovanni designed by Breda Garricky and Barry Steele and uh, that show it had everything it was dark it was modern it told Don Giovanni in a way that was so relevant that was so mm. real to audiences um, it was not the standard sort of um, play on oh I can fool people by putting on a different jacket it was a completely new idea and concept and uh, the audience reacted to it plus i've learned from that show that if you're ever in doubt about what a production needs to have just add fire add yes. a lot of fire love it, no. love it. yeah so much fire at oh, the end of don giovanni all of the fire retardant on fabric then i've heard that so many times from there's, costume people. there's the difference between <laughs> But uh, I mean, I, well, I always say if you if you have enough fire, the audience should feel it and they'll love it. So I mean, if you can cook a marshmallow from the orchestra pit, you're doing it oh right. Oh my gosh, golly! <laughs> I mean, in theory, that sounds lovely. But, uh, I mean, that sounds well, like a rock concert in, to me. I know. In reality, I don't know. <laughs> yeah. Um, so you mentioned that you went to school for. Uh, television and broadcasting but is opera something you've always wanted to work in or what was your initial introduction to opera oh i never actually went to uh, broadcast school oh, i was oh, oh. i was going to that was my plan and then i never went got it got it <laughs> him. got it yeah i got a job um so did i always want to work in opera specifically no i uh <laughs> i really thought that i was going to be a lighting technician okay. uh working in a venue somewhere um running a lighting board Uh, and uh, I still enjoy doing that but you know I'm not going to do it every day of my life Uh, and uh, 
I was fortunate to to get the job at Edmonton Opera. And, you know, after you work on three operas, you really discover that opera's pretty much got it all. It's got every challenge you can possibly think of. Um, it's got every reward you can think of. Mm-hmm. Um, in fact, now when I go to a, a musical or a, or a play, I always think, oh, they're talking again. <laughs> oh, that's funny. My goodness, just get to the singing part. That's or, really funny. you know what would be better? Some underscoring. So then what is your favorite aspect of working in opera and theater? I think you touched on it a little bit, but... What part of this as an arts medium is more appealing than broadcast and communication? And Well, I would say here, uh, it's really, it's such a people-focused environment. And uh, the people, the creativity, uh, what we do does not look complicated on the surface. For a patron mm-hmm. looking at a show, they see a set, they see costumes, they see singers, they hear the orchestra. Uh, hopefully there's lighting. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> There might be some sound reinforcement, but they see those things and they think of just the show that they're sitting there. Mm -hmm. You know, it's not a difficult thing. The curtain rises an hour and a half, two, three, sometimes four hours. Yeah, six (laughs) hours. Are listening to Wagner? Days, yeah, days go by. um, And what they've seen happens on stage and they leave the theater go back to their homes and hopefully think about the production and, and what it meant and what we were trying to to tell them in the story that was relevant. And I think that that the real crazy thing that we all love about this is just knowing how complex it is. Mm-hmm. And if it looks simple, how we've done our job. Success. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That, they, that it's effortless. Mm-hmm. Because the moment that something goes wrong, that's when the audience goes, oh that they're in a blackout and they're singing. Mm -hmm. I mean, something has obviously gone wrong with the lighting and it breaks that moment, right? Whereas if the lights are just always there, Mm -hmm. nobody thinks about it. Mm -hmm. It's just there, right? And so I think that it takes such an incredible team to pull that off um, that are both like incredible people that are filled with compassion and humanity and that really want to help tell a story that's got some relevance. And if we're helping our audience feel that emotion, I, I find that really rewarding that we're, we're helping them. And hopefully these works that we're doing that were written a century or two ago that, that might seem irrelevant now are actually very relevant to today's topics. I mean, the human condition really hasn't changed. And what we're doing as human beings um, is, is the same, you know, mm-hmm. love, betrayal, um, death, singing about our own deaths for yeah. several minutes on stage. A long time. Yeah, yeah. Long time. <laughs> a whole act yep. sometimes yep. Um, is is really like it's just a great feeling to take that home and to know that maybe we changed an audience member's opinion on something. Mm-hmm. Maybe we've helped give them some compassion so that when they go home, they have that you know, in their home life and and in their personal interactions with other people. So that's what I find rewarding. Well, then what would you be doing with your skills and compassion and collaboration if you weren't doing this? (laughs) Well, if I was fired today, I'd be under a bridge (laughs) asking for some money. Um, (laughs) um, But no, I've thought about this a lot, especially Mm -hmm. during the pandemic, right? Mm -hmm. It was like, I'm sure we all All had those conversations. And and we're not alone in the arts and those thoughts, too. There's so many people that, that probably thought, 
you know, what am I doing with my life? What am I doing with my existence? And I, I thought about this and I thought, geez, maybe I should be an air traffic controller. And I thought okay. that probably would be less stressful. Um, <laughs> Some days I think it does feel like yep. that would be less yep. stressful yeah. than this. Yep. And, and the thing That's about funny. being an air traffic controller is when you leave for the day, it's over with. It stays there. Yeah. Yeah, you don't take yeah. the airplane landing with you when you yeah. go home. I guess. I mean, <laughs> yeah. It's a little more <laughs> catastrophic if you make a mistake. I don't but, know, though, because yeah. if we make a mistake in theater, people can true. people can die, right? Or yeah. get seriously right. injured. That's very true. But very I, think, true. I, think couple, I think last season at some point, we sort of touched upon, I think we've also touched upon this with Joe, that like some jobs are much easier to mm-hmm. walk away mm-hmm. at the end of the day from mm-hmm. and you just get to be home yep. but it's very hard to do that often with the arts in general but especially in a collaborative art form because if I put in eight hours today but I haven't accomplished everything that I needed to it stops the next step in the process which impedes my coworkers. so I then therefore can't not take it home but yeah you know the airplane stays at the airport so that's true you're right and I also think we crave I mean this is speaking about myself a little bit but we kind of crave that sort of fulfillment I I we have talked about this and I'm always like oh wouldn't it be great to just close your computer at five and then wake up and at nine o'clock open but I don't yeah that would probably be great for a couple months and but you don't have or at least I wouldn't have that sense of fulfillment and that reward um I completely agree with you about the rewards there's nothing like um the audience experiencing the production and so i agree we i think we as humans just have fallen into these roles and um we need them as much as they need us yeah i mean you've made all great points (laughs) good for us us. i mean just to like touch on that i mean we once you find what you were meant to do it's easy to just be there and just know that you were meant to do that. So, I mean, if I didn't have this job, yeah, I probably would be under a bridge. But I'm hoping that once I don't work in this industry anymore or have this career, that I'm happily retired, right. you know, mm-hmm. living off my lottery winnings right. um, <laughs> in a villa somewhere. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so, Arizona operas. 2022-23 season continues with Strauss's Ariadne off Noxus at the Herberger Theater Center in Phoenix, December 2nd through the 4th, and at the Temple of Music and Art in Tucson, December 10th and 11th. Ariadne off Noxus will be followed by our main stage series, Tosca, The Sound of Music, and our season will close with The Magic Flute. Arizona Opera has a number of events and programs to supplement our main stage shows. These programs include student previews, our Brewster Opportunity Program, Coffee at Care Lecture Series, pre- and post-show talks, and our Opera for Lunch recitals featuring the Marion Roos Poland Arizona Opera Studio. To find all of Arizona Opera's upcoming events, visit azopera.org slash upcoming events or azopera.org and click calendar. Be sure to check our required COVID-19 safety requirements prior to attending an Arizona Opera event. To never miss a moment, be sure to subscribe to our email list and follow us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and LinkedIn. To never miss a moment, be sure to subscribe to our email list and follow us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and LinkedIn.
All right, so let's talk a little bit more about this season. What project this season are you most excited about? I'd have to say Ariadne. Uh, it's uh, our first uh, build here, or my first build here uh, with the company. Uh, it's a completely new. It's a completely new work, and uh, it should be really interesting to see it. all new sets, all new costumes, and it's working with a whole bunch of people that I've never worked with before, and that's a really exciting thing. We're also doing it in a smaller venue, which I think will be really interesting. Um, when we originally had scheduled to do Ariadne, we were going to do it in Symphony Hall um, and the Tucson Music Hall. Uh, and now we're going to do it in the Temple of Music and Art and uh, the Herberger Theater Center. That so. was in the spring of 2020 slot, right? Yeah. yeah. So yeah. we were literally rehearsing mm -hmm. and then the company shut down for COVID and the pandemic and we are bringing it back around now, but doing a completely different version of it mm -hmm. with the same director, mm -hmm. but not all of the same cast and yep. a completely different artistic vision. Yeah. And a new director of production. <laughs> Ding. Ding. <laughs> Sparkle. That's me. Yeah. <laughs> um, so what production from uh, the rest of our season are you expecting to be the most challenging if it hasn't already happened yet? <laughs> well, uh, at the time you're hearing this, uh -huh. it will have already happened, or okay. hopefully will have already happened. Mm -hmm. I would say The Falling and the Rising uh, is, at, at this exact moment in time, uh, I'm thinking is the biggest challenge of the season for me. It'll be the first production uh, for me, the first production for a lot of the new members of the team uh, in production. It has basically everything in it. It has um, video it has amplified sound. It has live video from the from the screen. It's in two different venues, of course. Um, it has uh, basically every production element you could possibly imagine uh, added into it, and it should look like a seamless, easy production. But it is incredibly complicated to to produce. Those very modern things are like that. Mm -hmm. They, on the surface, it's especially um, deceptive how difficult they are. When you go and watch a 1700s piece, you're like, oh, well, of course that took a lot of effort because nobody wears those clothes nowadays. Mm -hmm. We don't have big columns, whatever. But when you have a huge video wall and you're live connecting a camera to the performer mm -hmm. I think the modern audience sometimes forgets because we're so oh, yeah. oversaturated with mm -hmm. live cameras and video things mm -hmm. and sound that's been amplified yeah. that we don't realize all of the complexities of making those things talk to each other. What dream project would you bring to Arizona Opera if you could? Oh my goodness this is a really hard question um, because there is so much opportunity with what this company has. I mean, the video wall in itself, the fact that the company owns that asset, which I don't think any other opera company has. I mean, feel free to post in the comments if you know an opera <laughs> company that has a, owns their own video wall. Mm -hmm. um, the options with that are endless in terms of what you can do scenically in the background. And it doesn't just have to hang as a, as a solid wall. It can be built as part of the set. It can be a completely new experience that opera audiences don't get that's more similar to what 
uh, concerts are mm-hmm. producing. Mm-hmm. And I mean, the options for that are are incredible. If you're thinking of taking an older work and contemporizing it, or taking a new work and making it much more historic, I mean, the the options are are almost endless with that kind of technology, and what we want to do with it. So, I mean, I can't even. I, I haven't been here long enough to fathom what all we could do with that video wall, but mm-hmm. for me, it's endless possibilities there. So yeah, the video wall. Mm-hmm. Um, if you've seen Riders of the Purple Sage, that's a good mental picture of um, how we utilized the video wall. Some Charlie Parker's Yardbird, mm-hmm. also mm-hmm. Um, um, Das Rheingold, maybe. No, that was a different thing. Some well, sort of. We, did we use part of it for that? I know that the live feed technology that we used for that was slightly different than what we've done with other things Mm -hmm. um it is like if you think of really big flat screen tvs it clayton wasn't exaggerating it really is the thing that they use in concerts Mm -hmm. and like touring broadway shows Mm -hmm. and they link all together and standing behind it it's just enormous flat screen tv all you know one right after the other attached together with lights and wires and yeah it can be configured in a whole bunches of different yeah. ways yeah. and and we're using the the system itself twice this year we we've used it uh <laughs> on the falling and the rising uh as our video surface although it it not in its full capacity in a smaller version of it to not overwhelm the space and then for magic flute it will be replacing what used to be done with projectors yeah, and screens screen. and, and the Very the cool. vibrancy of the video wall will just completely transform that production uh into something new for the audience to see i mean the the options with it are are quite frankly endless when you don't have to have the projectors have to have a very specific amount of throw Mm -hmm. so distance from the actual lens to the screen and some are front and some are back and they have to talk to each other and and you're so so, and you're so limited with projectors in terms of what you can do with lighting because Mm -hmm. if you've got too much flare you can't see the screen i mean there's just so much talk and and the whole projection industry is about making a screen not look like a screen. Yeah, right. But at the end of the day, you have to have a surface for a screen to hit. (laughs) Whereas, and then you're still putting out light. You know, you're putting out what's known as video black. So even in in a completely dark screen, the audience can still see what's happening because there's these massive projectors throwing black light Mm -hmm. at the stage. Yeah. And uh, it's just a, a... interesting thing whereas the video wall when you turn it off it's, it's off, off. Yeah. yeah like it is comp- it's a black hole yeah and it just creates these really cool opportunities for us to have some great visuals in the company so i mean um joe and greg who bought that video wall here i mean really the thing should be signed by them like thanks for buying the video <laughs> yeah. wall because yeah. it is it's going to transform what our audience sees yeah. on stage so Great. Well, I think we're into our speed round section. Okay. Dun, what, dun, dun. Now, what, what's this? Now I'm nervous. Anymore. No. <laughs> okay. Cassie first, me first. You want to ask them? You have them, don't you? I do. Okay. Yeah, you can go first. So okay. basically, we just want your first mm-hmm. answer to this, these questions. They may they're or, fun. They're, they're fun. Not, I'm not going to ask you, no. like, how many lumens does this some such or other put out? Because no, yes, they may or may not have anything to do with the arts, theater, etc. 
This feels like a, a trip to the psychologist here. Yep. So, <laughs> where are the ink blots? Yeah. <laughs> okay. Are you ready? Ready. Okay. If you could have an exotic animal as a pet, what would it be? Oh, my goodness. <laughs> um, an exotic animal. I would have to say a lion because I'm a cat person. Okay. Okay. Mm-hmm. All right. But I wouldn't want a lion because that's wrong. Sure. Right. No, sure. this is yes. the yeah. in this hypothetically, hypothetically it's fine to have an exotic animal yes. okay. as a pet. <laughs> a male lion or a female lion? Oh, probably a male lion. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Nice big old mane like Simba. Yep. That's right. Yep. yep. <laughs> Lots to brush in the evening. <laughs> oh, God. The hairball. Yep. <laughs> I'm going to need a Dyson to go along with this. <laughs> yes. One of those pet vacuum where you like yeah. vacuum the, the actual pet. pet. Yeah, yeah. yeah. If you had the power to remove any one food item from existence, what would you get rid of? Mushrooms. I love. We asked this question uh, last season too. A couple different times, and it just it cracks me up that some people are like, hmm, but usually people have like a they know instant. Yeah, mushrooms. Mushrooms. Not a fan. Yeah. No. No, that they grow in horrendous conditions. I mean. It's it's not dirt, it's pre-dirt that they're growing in. I just, I can't understand why people would want to eat a mushroom. I don't get it. The texture is weird, they look weird. I see them in the grocery store and if somebody picks them up, I think, we can't be friends. Kathleen, do you like mushrooms? I do. I do not, but we're not surprised by that. I mean, I'm very willing to accept your lifestyle choices of liking mushrooms. That's so supportive of you, Clayton. But at the end of the day, please don't invite me over for mushroom soup. I don't use them very often at my house because I'm the only one at my house who likes eating Mm -hmm. them. My oldest enjoys mushrooms as a concept like they've done a whole bunch of paintings and some sculpture series yeah. on mushrooms but they don't want not to ingesting them, them. yeah mm-hmm. that's fair. yeah <laughs> i'm sorry i'm reading these questions for the first time too <laughs> if you could sneak anything across the canadian border what would it be well i'm not admitting to having done this um but i would like to sneak wine across the border is Red there... wine from Oregon, specifically. So you want American wine to go into Canada? Yes, yes, ah. and not have to pay duty on it. Oh, sure. That's, yeah. the, that's the big thing. I feel like I'm really getting one over on the government then. <laughs> Is but... there any, what would you sneak in reverse from Canada, from Canada to here? Oh, my goodness. Um, hockey I don't know. In general. Hockey. Clayton doesn't really I'm I know. love hockey. I'm not a big hockey person. The first thing I asked Clayton when he got here is if he was a hockey fan and was really disappointed. I thought it was just was a Canadian, you know, every Canadian. They're no, born with a hockey born stick. With a hockey stick. I mean, I enjoy going to a hockey game in person. <laughs> yeah. Um, mostly because I like the people watching. Sure. Yeah, um, but uh, the game is fine too. But I mean, that's it's an activity then. It's an entertainment. Yes. I'm not going to watch it on TV. That's how I feel about baseball. Yeah. 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 Fair. I have to be there yeah. to watch it. And yeah. Mm-hmm. That's fair. Oh, yeah. Baseball. I could, no. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> There's a lot of things I'd rather do with my life than, than <laughs> watch a baseball game. <laughs> So no Canadian item you're missing? Well, I, I haven't been here long enough oh, to that's miss true. anything. That's right. Um, yeah. I'll l- circle back to me. Okay, okay. <laughs> in, we'll call in a year. I'll follow up. <laughs> I'm probably going to say reasonable temperatures. Well. <laughs> it is so hot here. It, yes. It's true, but it is so cold. <laughs> that's fine. I, oh, I can no, put a layer on. No, no. I'm the opposite. I would yeah. rather be hot than cold. 
any day. Yep. We've had that discussion before, <laughs> we have. though, I think. Yep. <laughs> All right. What has been your greatest kitchen mistake? Oh, well, my partner could answer this quite <laughs> quite easily. I um, spent a summer, uh, I, had a, I had a month off, and I spent a summer perfecting homemade pasta. So various types of, you know, noodle that I would make or lasagna or it, whatever, right? I was perfecting pasta. And I thought one day I bought the tortellini attachment for my uh, hand crank pasta maker. And I thought, uh-huh. I'm going to make tortellini. And my partner came home from work and I was struggling to get the tortellini halves to stick together. It was just this mess. I was just ending up with this green, it was a spinach-based filling mm-hmm. mess. And I think I took the whole bowl and I threw the whole bowl into the garbage. Oh, no. And the look on his face when I said, we're going out for dinner. <laughs> and no words were ever spoken about that Until on today. that day. And then it, it gets brought up to me all the time now. Oh. Every time I... The time you threw all the pasta away. Pretty much. Or you open the cupboard and you see the attachment sitting there. I did wash it. I didn't throw the attachment apart. Yeah. It has not been used. I did move it here, though. So, I mean, I'll give it a try again. Maybe we'll have to have them pasta night. Pasta Mm -hmm. night. See Mm -hmm. if you can succeed this time. No. I'm not going to risk it. It's going to be ordered in. Okay. (laughs) All right. Perfect. So in the past couple of seasons, we've done trivia at the end, and Cassie and I decided that instead of doing trivia, we're going to do essentially what happens next. So I'm going to read a little story, and then Clayton and Cassie are both going to guess what happens next at the end of the story. And I have not heard these stories, Okay. so it's even playing field. (laughs) Do we buzz in? <laughs> I think we just share. Yeah, I, oh, will, okay. I will read part of it, and then I will be like, all right, what happens next? Okay. Okay. So this story um, is from 1964, and it took place at the Glenburn Festival. Feeling like I need to take notes. Mm-hmm. And it is about uh, the magic flute. So in this enchanting production... The scenery had these big triangular pillars and each pillar had a different facade on it. So they could change the scene by rotating the pillars. We've actually done a production similar to that a couple years ago. But the pillars in our production weren't freestanding. They were attached and they just pivoted. These were each independent things. They weren't attached to anything up in the fly. So from scene to scene, the stagehands had to turn each pillar 120 degrees. And near the beginning of the second half, when Papageno and Tamina are on stage, one of the stagehands lost their balance and brought the pillars down with them. And they cried, obviously, as they fell because these huge pillars were coming down with them. So Papageno and Tamino stopped and went backstage and ad-libbed in German, what? (laughs) (laughs) Um. (laughs) Wait, so these are true stories, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
So instead of stopping the show, no hold please was emitted by anyone. Mm -hmm. They just, in character, walked backstage to investigate the crash and the cries of stagehands Mm -hmm. and continued in German in character. Serasto, I think is his name, the the bad guy. Uh What have you done? Something like that. That's my answer. Okay. (laughs) No, I'm trying to think. Gosh, I don't know. Probably something funny. If Papageno is the one. Yeah, it's Papageno and Tomino, so. This is really hard. I think they ad-libbed in German. I think they ad-libbed in German what they were seeing. Oh, okay. Because there's no translation, so theoretically. Oh, well. Well, yeah, this was in 64, right. too. So yeah, there you're was right. going to be super titles and stuff also. I bet they ad-libbed what was happening. Okay. Like what they were actually seeing. <laughs> All right. So, in the past, we've done our trivia at the beginning of the previous episode. But I think we're just going to finish the story here, just mm-hmm. to wrap it up nice. So, what actually happened was these two lovely gentlemen walked backstage, and in German, they ad-libbed to the benefits of Guinness, and they helped lift the pillars up themselves, proving how strong Guinness had made them. And then they went back on stage and finished the scene. Hmm. Huh. That's a better answer. That is a better answer. So in case you weren't sure, Guinness makes you strong enough to lift pillars that have crashed over, apparently. That's hilarious. That's so funny. Thank you, Clayton, for joining us uh, for our podcast. It was great to get to know you and a little bit about more, a little more about what you're bringing to this director of production position. We're excited to see the rest of the season play out. Me too. <laughs> Thanks for joining us. Thanks. Join us in our next episode where we speak with a member of the design team for Ariadne Afnoxis. We'll be releasing a new behind-the-scenes podcast every month, so make sure you check our website, azopera.org, and follow us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and LinkedIn, and join our email list so you never miss a moment. Arizona Opera Behind the Scenes is made possible in part thanks to the support of the Molly Blank Fund, Dr. Rex Brewster, Investing Kids Charitable Gift Fund, the Moreno Family Foundation, the Ted Stephen Teaching Artist Endowed Fund, the Arizona Republic, Cardinals Charities, the City of Peoria, and a consortium of individual donors. This program is also part of the Arizona Opera Next Gen Initiative that encompasses a wide variety of programs that go beyond the opera stage to develop the next generation of opera artists, audiences, and philanthropists. To learn more about the programs that are a part of the Arizona Opera Next Gen Initiative, please visit azopera.org and click Next Gen Initiative. These programs are made possible in part thanks to generous support from Roma Whitkoff, Jeanette J. Siegel, the Molly Blank Fund, APS, SRP, Jody Pelusi, Joy Tevis, and a consortium of individual donors. Special thanks goes out to the Marlu Allen and Scott Stallard Costume Artisan Workshop. This podcast is produced by its hosts, Cassie Hollerbach and Kathleen Trott, with editing and music composition by Sean Mallow.